This past week, we remembered September 11th. We commemorated that once again. It's been 18 years since that dreadful attack. That attack that happened that day, you probably, if you were alive, and I believe that uh, the graduating class of last year and this year, they were not alive when 9-11 happened. They're the first class to graduate, to not have a memory at all of that day. You probably remember where you were that day. You probably remember what you were doing when the news of that attack happened. I saw a memory, I saw a story, it was on ESPN that shared it this week, from that day about a young man who risked his life. His name was Wells Crowther. His picture will come up. His father, when he was six years old, gave him a red handkerchief, a red bandana. He always had that bandana with him. And usually, his Boston College, he played, he played hockey. Uh, he was a lacrosse, Division I. And under that helmet, he would wear that red bandana. It was just something he always had. It was kind of funny. His dad said, here's a handkerchief, one to hold, and here's one you put in your pocket, one to blow. Like, you know, you know he had two different handkerchiefs. He always kept that with him. As he graduated, he became an equities trader. He worked in the South Tower that morning. Plane struck, North Tower, 8.46 a.m. He was on the 104th floor of the South Tower. He called his mom, let her know I'm okay. He had told his dad sometime before this that he really didn't see his life lived before a computer terminal. He really wanted to go back to what he learned as a, as a child. He, he was a volunteer firefighter or a junior firefighter. He loved the idea of being a firefighter, and he was really considering giving up working on the 104th floor in Wall Street to go back and to just go and be a firefighter. There was a whole group of people, and you remember that, how that account unfolded. There was confusion over whether people should leave through the intercoms of the buildings, it's okay. They didn't want panic. They didn't want people trampled. They told people, stay put. Then they changed and said, you need to get out. And there was confusion over, do we stay? Do we go? What has happened? I remember that when I heard a, a, a plane has hit the tower, I'm thinking, you know, what, a Cessna? Like that, that was my first thought. Somebody's like, me through New York City, and they bink into the North Tower, or, you know, only to see the pictures and realize this, this is horrific. So there on the, it was on the 78th floor of the South Tower, there was a whole group of people waiting to exit the building at the elevators. And nine oh two, the plane went through at an angle. It ripped through multiple floors as it entered that building. Multiple floors were instantly filled with fire, smoke, all types of carnage. One of the ladies that was there was finding it impossible to get out. They didn't know where to go. She said, I couldn't see. Smoke was everywhere. We didn't know if we walk this way, are we going to fall out of the building, fall down a floor? They couldn't see. They were paralyzed in fear. Her name is Ling Young. And she described what happened. She said a young man 
came out of nowhere. He said, follow me. I found the stairs. This young man led out multiple groups of people, asking them to help others. There's an excerpt, and this is the New York Times, May 26th, 2002. This is the article. The title of the article, as you can see, is Fighting to Live as the Towers Died. And there's an excerpt in this article that, the, that, that Wells' mother read, and she said, that's my son. This is the excerpt from the article that day, and it's from an account of another lady who was there. Her name is Judy Ween. And this is what she said. She said, a mysterious man appeared at one point, his mouth and nose covered with a red handkerchief. He was looking for a fire extinguisher. As Judy Ween recalls, he pointed to the stairs and made an announcement that saved lives. Anyone who can walk, get up and walk now. Anyone who can perhaps help others, find someone who needs help and then head down. And the account is he was calm. He knew the way. He led them to the stairway. Stairway went down some floors. They walked over to another elevator that went down all the way. They exited the building. They believe that he saved 18 lives. When they found when they found his body, he was lying next to firefighters. They found that red handkerchief. Those individuals, so many. They gave their lives that day. He led other people out and they said he went back up. He knew the way. He knew that there were others to be helped. Now I want you to consider something with, with all of the sobriety that comes with that day and that account. I want you to consider with me if those people, and there were 18 people that he showed the way to freedom, can you imagine if those 18 people left the building? They were on their way out of the building. They were making their way to freedom. And another messenger, another person would come along and say, you don't need to leave. It's okay. Follow me. Here's the elevator up. We need to get back to work. Can you imagine what that headline would look like? Trapped, delivered, trapped again to death. That's how that headline would read. What would people say if they saw someone else coming in contradicting his message? Most surely they would say and they would cry out, don't listen to them. Get out. Don't follow them. Get out. You've been rescued. Get out. Run. Get out of here. Don't go back into the building. Get out and stay out. Why would you ever return to a place of bondage and death? Live and enjoy the freedom that's been given to you at the cost of someone else's life. That is the tone 
that provides the backdrop for Paul penning this six-chapter brief letter to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to them. And my question for you this morning is this. Have you been set free by the Lord Jesus? Have you been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ? As you think about that question, do you know anyone that you thought they were set free? And they once walked in worship and they once sang the songs with us and they once, once attended the Bible studies with us and they once partook of communion with us and they once maybe went through the waters of baptism, maybe even right there. And then for one reason or another, they seem to go back to the life from which they were delivered. Or maybe you even know, as I do, that somebody in a family was brought out of a, a, a pointless, a, a Christless tradition, no salvation, and they came to know Christ, and then maybe a generation or two later, their children or grandchildren go back into that religion of works and no salvation. And that grandparent looks on and says, are you kidding me? The Lord saved me out of that tradition that was empty and no salvation. And how are you going back in there? Do you know the freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ? As Paul writes to the Galatians, he is so urgent. He's even abrupt. He's harsh in this letter. He uses sarcasm in this letter. He's using everything to get straight to the point. He cannot believe what he's hearing about the spiritual standing of the Galatians. He penned this sometime around 50 AD. We believe it's his first letter that he wrote. It's after his first missionary journey. The image will come up of the map of Galatia. And in Acts 13 and 14, we see the missionary expedition where Paul was sent out. And he and, and, and they went out on this expedition. And so in Galatia, there's this whole Roman province, North Galatia, Southern Galatia, more populated in the South. And all of these churches were in Acts 13 and 14. There's great persecution that came as Paul presented the gospel there. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of Christianity. It's a declaration of freedom from sin. That Satan, we're free from sin, we're free from Satan, and we're delivered even from the old self. Paul was up against, and he was writing against false teachers, and they're known as Judaizers. They're not just simply Jews, they're a sect that we're holding and trying to resurrect pharisaical traditions and mix it with Christianity. Judaizers, they came in after Paul. They began mixing works with faith to achieve salvation is what their message was. They were resurrecting the old ways of Judaism, of religion, in order to merit salvation and standing with God. So they were preaching a message that doesn't save. It was what Paul was saved and delivered out of. So here's the question. How is it that a person can be made righteous before God? This is the question. This is what every religion seeks to answer. How can I be made right with God? How can I be reconciled to God? How can I have peace? 
Maybe you remember asking that question. Maybe you're here this morning and you're asking that question right there. There's really two ways. It's outside in and there's inside out. Outside in is, can we be made right with God through works? Is it something we do? Is it something that is our work by keeping the law, all the do's and the don'ts? And well, here's what it is to be saved. Well, you need to be saved, but then you have to be baptized. We, we add baptism to it. That's, or saved and then the communion elements, you have to have those. And if you don't have those, then you, you can't be sure that you're saved or the sacraments or religious feasts or holidays or perhaps fasting and maybe salvation. And you have to observe these ceremonies or some would say, well, you have to, have you spoken tongues yet? Have you had a second blessing yet? Salvation, well, that's good, but it's not all. It's not everything. It's not totally, completely sufficient. Maybe you don't have the right Bible translation. That's what a lot of people will say, and they hold to that. Maybe you don't wear the right clothing. Maybe you don't listen to the right music or the right station. Maybe you don't have the right haircut or the right church. The question at the root of all of these things is, what is it that we do to be made right with God? Is it our work? Is it our working? Or is it God's work? Is it God's working? Is it by grace through faith? Hold your place there in Galatians and go back with me to Acts 13. Acts 13, I just want to see a very simple presentation of the gospel that Paul gave when he was on that first missionary journey. In Acts 13, verses 38 and 39. Now, this is the first series that I will be preaching through uh, using the English Standard Version. Um, I've got a larger print now. My eyes needed that. And uh, I've wanted to make this transition. Jamie's been using this one for a long time. And I've used this one probably for a decade in my personal devotions. And um, so that's the translation I'm using. I know some of you missed the day when I shared that some time ago and you've been asking. Acts chapter 13, look at verse 38. In verse 38, Paul says, let it be known to you. Okay, so after this whole message, here's his appeal. Therefore, brothers, he's speaking to Jewish people, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Okay, so there's the message of salvation. Paul came preaching this message, the keeping, trying to keep the law of Moses will not save you and you can't keep it anyway. But if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone, he will free you from everything. It's sufficient to save. That's the message. And so Paul was appealing to them, trust in Jesus. And many did. We know what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and verse 10. It will come up. Is it God's work? Well, Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of, is it our work? No, not according to the word of God. It's God's work. It's not of work so that no one may boast. Doesn't the Lord know us well? 
Do you know how much I gave to the building program? Do you know how many meals I packed up and served on Thanksgiving Day? Do you know the endowment that I left to the Christian university? Do you know how many scripture verses I memorized? Do you know how many Bibles I have? Fill it in, whatever your thing is, right? Is it our work? No, because otherwise we would boast. Heaven will not be earth on steroids. Men boasting about themselves. Heaven will be, we boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our boast is in the lamb, amen? It's all about Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. So we are, we are saved for, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is the Bible saying? You have to get your preparation, the pre, your prepositions right. How, we're saved by grace. We're saved, where does it say? For good works. We are not saved by good works for grace. We're saved by grace through faith for a reason. So we work from salvation, from being loved by God. It produces fruits. It produces works of righteousness because now they can actually be right righteousness because we are his workmanship. We're not defiled trying to make things better, only making things worse. We're saved for a reason. Galatians can be seen as a rough draft for Paul's later letter to the Romans. In Galatians, Paul is abrupt. Paul is angry. Paul is passionate. He's even pastoral, and he's parental. So those of you who are parents, or you remember your parents growing up, did you ever just tell your kids one time, and that settled it, solved it, didn't ever have to, I told them one time, it's all done. Yes, my parents told me one time, and I never forgot, and I always perfectly obeyed. Probably not, unless your name is Jesus. He's parental. He's pastoral. You say, is that appropriate? How come he can't just be nice? Shouldn't pastors just be nice? Shouldn't they just make everybody happy? Well, you're sensible people. You see how Paul writes Galatians, and let's try to come away with that a real, with a very wise understanding. Galatians is like a tract. It's like a pamphlet that Paul wrote wherein he clarifies the gospel and he denounces any teacher or teaching that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. So let me ask us this question. What is your understanding of the gospel? What is your understanding of the gospel? If you don't understand the gospel, you cannot be saved. Once you understand the gospel, the, the way, the words of life then you know, you, you, if you trust in the gospel, you rep repent and place your faith and trust in Jesus. You understand the gospel. Now you understand the body of truth that you can share with someone else so that they can be delivered. Listen, on that day, Wells didn't have a time to send you to the training class on how to get people out of the building. He didn't have time for that. He simply knew this. I'm alive. I'm intact. And I found the exit. There's people in need, and I'm going to go tell them, go this way and get out. I wonder if you can do that. 
I wonder if God can use my tongue to do that, to tell people, I don't know the entire Bible front to back, have it all memorized in all the languages, but I know this, I was a sinner and God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ, God in flesh, his son, and he was born of a virgin and he lived a life that I could never live. He was sinless. He was perfect. And he took my place as a substitute on the cross. He died my death. He took my place. He bore the wrath of God that was headed toward me. And that punishment was poured out on Jesus. And he died and he was buried. And he rose again and he ascended and he's coming again. And he's given me life that never ends. Because I'm not trusting in me and him. I'm trusting in him alone. And if you turn from your sin and trust in him, he'll receive you with this love that everyone would look on and say, that's crazy love. That's reckless love. That's foolish love to love sinners. All they are is treasonous. And God in your mercy you would love them oh this is a good and faithful and glorious God do you understand the gospel how have you responded to this gospel it's one thing to know it it's another thing to rest in it it's another thing to understand it and have been embraced and embraced the gospel one commentator explained it this way he said the gospel is God's one remedy for the lost Just one. I was at a graveside this week. I have no idea what that family's understanding was before that service of the gospel. But I could offer to them the good news of Jesus Christ. God has made a way for sinners. How fearful then a crime, therefore, to try to poison the well of salvation. That's what the Judaizers are doing in the churches and in that region of Galatia is they're trying to poison the well. But what happens if you poison the well? What happens if you just mix in a little bit of, I know, Jesus and Christ alone, but you really need to be baptized or you're probably not saved. Just mix one work in. And you've poisoned, you've polluted the gospel. So this letter, Paul doesn't waste time. He cuts straight to the chase. He goes straight to the heart of all that we cling to as followers of Jesus Christ. He goes directly for the jugular. He goes for the gospel. You see here, this graphic will come up. The gospel is beautiful because it shows us, the very same gospel, it shows us two directions. On one hand, it shows us how bad we are. Okay, the bad news, the diagnosis. You're sinners. You've rebelled against God. You are, the wages of sin is death. You deserve to die. You deserve punishment. You're awful. You are wretches. That's the gospel. Now, if that was the end, boy, that's a tough message, right? But at the same time, the very same gospel also tells us and proclaims to us how much we are loved by this very same God and what he has done to reconcile us. So this image, oh, I pray that this would would burn because in in, in the truthfulness, it says you're a sinner and you don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve anything but judgment and punishment. But wait a second, there's good news. The wages of sin is death, but hang on, I'm not done yet. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's there's a hope, there's a promise that's available. For 2,000 years, 
preaching this message of salvation has brought persecution. You see, understand this. When Paul writes this message, he's writing to believers. The gospel is not just for salvation and then we're done. I graduated that class. Give me the gospel little sticker, Pastor, and I'll put it on my wall, put it on my car, past, done. Now teach me the deeper truths of the Bible, please. We never graduate from the gospel. We're saved by the gospel. We're sustained by the gospel. We need the gospel. Paul is writing to people who have said, we believe the gospel. We've received the gospel. We understand the gospel. And Paul is writing them. He's not writing non-believers. There's a confusion sometimes in people like, Pastor, you need to, you know, maybe preach, and not just to me, this is a common of pastors, of, you need to preach evangelistic messages. Every message is the word of God is an evangelistic message. It doesn't matter where you are. It's the word of the living God that cuts, that convicts, and at the same time points to Jesus. Paul is using this letter like a surgeon uses a scalpel. Not going in for just injury. Going in with precision as fast as possible to address the problem. To get out the tumor. To get out the cancer. So he's not going to play around. He's not going to worry about, oh, we've got some freckles over here. Oh, I see you got an ingrown toenail. Yeah, maybe we need to address that, you know. And, oh my, yeah, looks like we could fix this or that. No, if you have a tumor, that doctor's worried about what's going to kill you. That's how Paul is writing this letter. The temptation to compromise was pressing in on the Galatian churches. You remember when Paul came? He preached the gospel and they persecuted. In one instance, they left him for dead. They stoned him. They dragged him outside of the city. They stoned him. They left him for dead. The brothers gathered around him, prayed over him, and he came walking back into the city. That's these people. They witnessed this. And they're struggling. Perhaps they're trying to compromise. Maybe, maybe if we just, you know, these people are saying we just need to blend Judaism, the law, the feast, circumcision, all these things. Let's put all that together and Christianity and then we won't be, you know, persecuted. We won't lose our jobs. It won't be difficult. It won't be awkward at the celebration, the family dinner, the local, you know, well. We can just all, can't we all just get along and be, what's the key word of the day? Tolerance. Paul is saying no. Loving, always. Tolerant of error, never. Never. So he writes. Perhaps you've experienced this type of turmoil in your relationships. Perhaps you've wrestled with maintaining the proper balance, as I have, of speaking the truth in love, especially when it's people close with you. And they, they, they quip things to you like, yeah. They just they try to hurt you to not let you talk about the truth. Try to make it sound like you're unloving if you show them the truth and even in a loving way. Then can I welcome you to the study of Galatians? I want to commend a resource to you. It's one of the resources that I'll be uh, reading as I go through. It's Tim Keller's uh, Galatians for You. I would recommend, there's great questions in here. 
It'll progress uh, somewhat along the lines of where we're going, but this is a good resource with great questions of reflection along with our small groups that will begin the launch next week. And we will be then gathering in small groups and breaking this down and sharing life together and praying for one another that we might rightly understand and obey and apply the gospel in our lives. Let's unpack this introduction. Five verses. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. So be it. This is a very brief introduction. It's straight to the point. Let's ask a few and answer a few questions. Number one, who is the author? All right, the author is the Apostle Paul. He wastes no time. Okay, what's going on there in these Galatian churches? There are people who are, they're trying to throw doubt on his apostleship, on his credentials. Some of you work in places, you have to have credentials, If you don't have credentials, if you don't have an ID, you can't get in. If you forget your ID at home, you're going to have to go through a process to get access. There are people who are questioning Paul's credentials. He is authoritative because he's an apostle, apostolos. It's an authorized representative. It's a term from the Greek. There is authorized representatives. We have ambassadors uh, from our country. They're around the world and they speak on behalf. They're, They're given authority to speak on behalf of the United States government. These are apostles. This claim to apostleship is right in the first place. It's a prominent place in the introduction. Where Paul is saying, you're doubting my credentials? Let me, let me show my credentials to you. Now, in this sense, apostles with a capital A, very important, apostles with a capital A were authorized representatives of Jesus Christ. They were given authority to speak on his behalf, and they are the ones used by the Holy Spirit to author the New Testament. Jesus didn't write any of the New Testament. He authorized representatives So it was either them writing or someone close to them under their influence by which we have the books of the New Testament, the letters, the Gospels. Paul says, I'm an apostle. This office with a capital A, non-repeatable. They were eyewitnesses of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in another sense, you'll see in Scripture that all Christians are apostles, lowercase a, small a, because we've all been sent by Jesus. So in that sense, we're all sent, we're all given the great commission, but we're not given that authority. So I know there are churches today, and they use the title for people, oh, this is apostle so-and-so, apostle so-and-so is going to be in town, apostle so-and-so is going to have a word from God, a fresh word from God. Understand what they are saying. Those, Those are so... 
so thin ice, so dangerous to say, you got Peter and you got Paul and then throw up in there, Brian. Whoa. Might be missing a little humility there. So we're all sent ones. But there was only one office of those who they saw for themselves the resurrected Jesus Christ and they were commissioned directly by him. And that's what Paul appeals to. He says this wasn't by a human choice. It wasn't from men through or through man. These apostles were not elected. Paul wasn't voted on by leaders in a church or by people in a church in the same way that they they did for elders and deacons in the church. No, not the apostles. Jesus is the one who authorized, called, and commissioned and sent out the 12. Their their title, the 12. They They weren't graduates of the modern school in Judaism. Like, these are the best of the best, and so we nominate them, and they'll be the apostles of Jesus. No. A lot of them were nobodies. Saul of Tarsus, he was a somebody. But he had to be completely humbled, blinded, see the resurrected Savior, and he was completely transformed. Acts 9 is the account of that. Paul was divinely chosen. He was called and commissioned. He says, I wasn't brought, this didn't come through man. I didn't win a popularity contest. This came from Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Do you understand the credentials he is using here? He's saying, I have been called by the Godhead. He's writing under the influence, inspired by the Spirit of God, and he says, it's Jesus and the Father, and I'm writing of the Spirit. The Trinity is on my side, and you're questioning my credentials? These teachers are questioning my credentials? His apostleship was confirmed, as he says, and he says, not just the Godhead, but he says in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. This is no small thing. Everybody will attest to who I am, who I was before I came to know Christ, how I met Jesus, and who I am now, and what I'm to be doing with my life. So he says, the brothers, these believers in Galatia and these churches were being duped. They were being duped to go back into the lifestyle that Paul was delivered from. And they were not doing well discerning truth from error. Beloved, how are we doing? How are we doing discerning Christian slogans, little Instagram things and wallpaper savers and inspirational quotes? How are we doing ourselves at discerning truth from error? Do we find ourselves working hard to say, well, I know those people are in this tradition that does not preach it's by grace through faith, but I'm sure they're okay. Why would you do that? That would be like standing at the bottom of the tower saying, I'm sure it's going to be all right. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Here's a flashlight. Here's a smoke mask. Head on in now. You'll be okay. No. Not if you cared about people. You wouldn't say that. You would say, get out. There's the way to safety. Run to it. Run to it and live. Paul's the author. Who is the audience? Now, this is unusual here because it's the only letter that Paul wrote not to a specific person, Titus, Philemon, Timothy, or a church, Ephesian church, the Corinthian church. Here he's writing to churches. 
This is a letter that's going to be a circular letter. It's written to the churches of Galatia. So he's writing to them. This is unique. There's multiple churches that he planted. These are his children in the faith. There are people that God has used me and people have come and made a profession of faith. I regard them as children in the faith. And they have turned and gone back to the ways of the world. Back to a life of unbelief or back to a different system of belief. It's devastating. These were Christians. They were followers of Christ. The map was up earlier. It's going to come back up. Acts 13 and 14, a little larger this time. There's two different theories. There's a lot of writing about, well, which churches in Galatia and so forth. Let me just give a summary. Okay, you have the north that I mentioned, this north part of the province up here, uh, very sparse, populated by the Gauls in the third century, and, and then they were defeated. And so this was more uh, true to those European uh, people that lived here. But then down in the southern province where there's more people, there's more uh, traffic, there's more um, road, there's more systems of travel back and forth. It's populated by all different races. And Paul's primary mode of ministry was to move into capital cities of provinces and use those as a beachhead. If he was looking at the United States of America, he'd say, I need, to go to, I need to go to Miami. I need to go to Chicago. I need to go to New York. I need to go to L.A. I need to go to these major cities. Because in the major cities, out from those cities, is going to come thought and thinking and influence in the nation. And there's so many people there. And if they catch the vision and they go out, then there's a chance of us reaching this entire nation to reach the world for Christ. So I'm of the position that he's writing to these churches that he visited on his first mission trip down in the Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm believing that he's writing um, to those churches, the churches that had recently been founded. They were under the assault of these Judaizers. These Judaizers were promoting that salvation by grace through faith, that's not good enough. They were rejecting Paul. They were bringing their own Jewish system, including here's all your de detailed religious observances. Here's your fast. Here's your feast. Here's the things you need to do physically. Here's your dietary restrictions. And listen, beloved, this can be very tempting. See, these churches, when Paul came in and they saw signs and wonders and they saw amazing things happen and we have people go to retreats or go to youth camp or go to these places where it was amazing, go to a Billy Graham crusade and oh, it was amazing or a promise keepers or whatever and there's thousands of people and they're all singing and I gave my life to Christ and then I went home and the dog was sick on the carpet and I have struggles at my job and the marriage really is still struggling and my kids still don't listen to me. And can I just go back to the conference? Can I go back to the, whoa, that was amazing, right? You understand? The Galatians are like, what is this really the Christian life? This is hard. This is difficult. There's suffering. There's persecution. In come the people with the lists and the clipboards. In come the people with, oh, you want to be a good Christian? Well, here's what you need to do. Here's the things. Here's the ways. Here's this. Here's that. And this is the way to be a good follower of Christ. And Paul's saying, no. You can't do that. To add anything to the gospel is to pervert the gospel. So if you add, well, that's good to be saved, but you have to be baptized. And if you're not baptized, you're not saved. 
Some would say, but you have to be baptized by these certain people who are direct line down from the apostles. And if you're not in a direct line, then your baptism is no good. You have to go through these classes, these confirmation, these things, have this, have that, have the other, whatever you try to mix into that. Maybe you need to take a pilgrimage or whatever. I grew up in Wisconsin. One of our players, you know, one of the players there, Reggie White, the Minister of Defense. I have his poster somewhere rolled up. At the end of his life, he got somehow turned on to the Hebrew roots, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, was held a piece of the Torah, and he's starting to learn Hebrew, and he died. And his end of his life was absolutely almost cancels back all of the ministering that he did in the NFL preaching the gospel. It's sad. I wonder if you think here this morning, oh, that would never happen to me. Oh, I will always believe. I will always be on the straight and narrow. Oh, salvation by grace through faith. That's right, pastor. And in fellowship, yes, I will be there. You can count on me. We, we probably need to say, Lord, we need humility. Help me to finish well. Help me to finish my race in faithfulness. Paul's writing to multiple churches. Galatians has been the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, he, he loved Galatians. He loved this so much, he called it, this is my Katie. He said, it's my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. And you know what was Galatians? in Martin Luther's hand that was like a dagger and a battering ram to the church of Rome. He used Galatians. Galatians absolutely strengthened him and empowered him and instructed him to strike at the errors of the papacy. John Wesley, through Galatians, he received great assurance of faith and salvation the theological value of this letter to the Galatians, it lies in the fact that one commentator says it this way, that it's so similar to Christians of every age. You see, we all face these temptations. Let's hide from risk. Let's play it safe. Let's not you know, ruffle anybody's feathers. Let's just all get along. Let's just be nice. The 11th commandment, right? Be nice. Now we're to speak the truth in love. There's another temptation that we've faced throughout the generations, and that is to add something to the gospel or to take something away from the gospel. No, we need the simple gospel. In our day, the lines between the denominations are disappearing. You, you know, you see this, right? where there's just kind of a massive amount of people that are lining up on, let's just all do whatever it takes to keep people at ease, that everybody can be right. You can't say anyone is wrong. You can't disagree with anybody. We're all okay. We can all be wrong, but we can't all be right. And Paul is writing to these Galatians to give them the clarity of the gospel. The truth of Galatians is still felt today and its message is still needed in the church today. So what's the aim? 
Why is Paul writing? Well, he's writing, and it's what our series is titled. He wants the believers throughout these Galatian churches to stand firm in grace. I've titled this series from this book because when you get the idea of stand firm, right, you can hear the military drill sergeant. You can hear the football coach. Come on! Stand firm! Right? You got to... You got to buck up. You got to get it together, you losers. You know, you, gotta, you hear that person just draw. Stand firm. But we stand firm in grace. Whoa. We got to tenderize. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to answer, First Peter says, with meekness and fear. That we should be known for humility because what did we get on our own? Nothing. If I get what I deserve, it's hell. And God was gracious to me. So, brothers and sisters, let's stand firm. But we always must stand firm in grace. In the gospel. In love. In forgiveness. In forbearing with one another. This uh, line will come up. This is kind of a summation of this book. Ultimate freedom from sin's power and penalty is found only in Christ Jesus through being justified by faith. That's a mouthful. But that's this book in a sentence. Ultimate freedom. Not just freedom. We can go go back for me just right there for a second. This isn't just freedom from a momentary disaster like 9-11. Set free. You were set free, but what about your soul? This is ultimate freedom from sin's power and penalty is found, and here it is, only in Christ Jesus. How? Through being justified by what? Faith. I wonder if you have believed the gospel in this way. So as Paul writes... In his aim, as a pastor, as an apostle, as one who loves these people, what is he doing? He's going to exhort the churches. He's going to exhort the churches. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to them about grace and peace. He was going to encourage them. And he's writing to exhort them, to remind them of the true gospel and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. He's writing to exalt Jesus Christ. He wasted no time in getting to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That Jesus possesses all authority and that every knee will bow to him. As he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, Jesus was completely loved by the Father. He said, your will be done, not my will be done. And he just cannot help himself. But in the first opening, just the sentence, the greeting, he's all the way to the cross. He's all the way to Jesus. Thirdly, he wants to expel error. He's frustrated. He's even angry with the lies being spread around in the churches. He's hurt by what they're saying about him. And no one is taking up his cause. This is nothing new in ministry. Well, I'm sure they meant well. Well, I'm sure, you know, they'll be all right. Well, I'm sure that... What are you sure of? Paul is sure that nobody is saying, you need to shut your mouth Paul almost died here and brought us the gospel. He is an apostle. And you need to take all that message and you need to go somewhere else because we're not buying it here. And nobody was saying that, as we can read in here. Or he probably would have said, what's missing here is a praise. Good job. It's absent from this letter. There's not one praise to these churches. 
Nobody's saying it. Nobody's, nobody's standing in grace. So he's writing to them with an iron pen. Stand in grace. Expel her. False teaching. False teachers. They need to get out. You have to stand in grace. He wants to explain the gospel of grace. And I want you to write a word beside this. Letter D. Explain the gospel of grace. And right out beside that, I want you to say again. Write again. Okay? It wasn't that they didn't know it the first time. It wasn't that he gave them a partial message the first time he visited them. He's explaining it to them again. He's, let's go right back to the basics. Let's go right back to the ABCs again. You must have missed it. You're forgetting it. We're never going to graduate beyond it. So he explains the gospel of grace again. What does he say? The grace to you and peace from God our Father in verse 3 and for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself. He's our substitute for our sins. Why? To deliver us. That's the word rescue. That's the word to deliver us from the present evil age. And they're saying, well, Jesus is great, but you need to do this to be rescued. Jesus is, well, we like Jesus, but you also have to have this. You also need to eat these things and observe these feasts and make sure, you know, all these other things that we'll come to in this letter. You say, well, when is the evil age? Today? Yesterday? When Paul was writing, evil age, Satan is the prince and power of the air. He's the god of this world. He's powerful, but he's not all powerful. Greater is he that is in you who belong to Christ than he that is in the world. We are overcomers. So how are we made righteous before God? Beloved, the gospel is not about what we can do. The gospel is about what God has done in Christ. And that's what Paul is already here, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be, and here's where he extols the Father. To extol is to give the weight. It's to give the praise. It's to just exalt in the, the most glorious and to lift up, to exalt, to extol the Father. And he says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So listen, Paul, he, he, his heart is breaking for these Galatians. He's moved with compassion for them. He didn't throw them away. He didn't just get angry at them and be done with them. And I'm going to unfriend you and not talk to you anymore. He didn't do that. He writes to them, but he goes beyond them. Where do you think he got this from? The day he was holding the coats and Stephen is dying and Stephen looks beyond that group and looks beyond Saul of Tarsus and looks to Jesus. And that's what Saul, now Paul, is doing here. He's saying, I'm not going to put my eyes on you. My faith and trust isn't in you. I love you, but you're being hoodwinked. Put your eyes on Jesus. And he can't wait. This is what ministry is, beloved. And it's hard. And I'm saddened that another pastor committed suicide again this week. A young man who was an advocate and he was open about his wrestling with depression and suicidal thoughts. Even helped and wrote a book and succumbed to the doubt and the temptation that you're, you're worthless. There's no hope. 
This is what ministry is. And this is what ministry will always be. If you have any other expectations of me or that I have of Jamie or of Russ or of anyone who's serving, this is what it is. This is what Paul is doing 2,000 years ago. And should the Lord tarry 2,000 years from now, as we faithfully hand the baton, exhort the churches, believers, not buildings, people. He's writing to multiple gatherings of believers. Exalt Jesus. Expel error. Explain the gospel of grace and let all things extol the Father, the giver of all good things. So let me ask you this question. How have you personally responded to the gospel? I've asked that question a few times this morning. Have you responded in repentance and faith? If you have, if you say, yes, pastor, I have. I have turned from my sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then let me invite you to rest. Rest in his love. Rest in his grace. Rest in his goodness. Rest in his acceptance of you. Rest in his love. Rest in the finished work of the cross that's represented in the elements of communion. If you have not, then I invite you to come to receive the gift of life. To give to Jesus your sin, your shame, your doubts, all your rags of unrighteousness and let him take those from you and give to you his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the goodness of Christ in the gospel. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit and thank you for your church. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that declares how bad we are, but it declares how good you are and all that you have done to rescue us from our sin. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here today in this service or in the next service or as this message goes out uh, through social media, uh, Lord, that you will convict their heart and convince them of your love and goodness and righteousness and they will respond by turning from their sin and trusting in you. Do this work. This is a supernatural work. I can't do this. But you do this every day. You have done this in many of our hearts. And I'm asking you to do it again today. In Jesus' name and for his sake and for the glory of the Father. Amen.